Welcome to Storytelling Animals, an environmental books podcast hosted by me, Dayton Martindale. The first few episodes were interviews with authors, and that's going to be most episodes, but today is a little different. It's just me talking about a few works of fiction that take place in post-apocalyptic worlds, and how these stories depict nostalgia for how the world used to be. The main focus will be Station Eleven, both the 2014 novel and the HBO Max show that just wrapped up in January. Then I'll compare it to a couple other stories that deal with similar themes. The 2014 movie Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and Kim Stanley Robinson's first novel from the 1980s, The Wild Shore, before concluding with some more general thoughts. Specifically, I'm interested in how stories set in the future look back at our present world. Are they nostalgic for the affluence and convenience, or do they look back in disgust, understanding that many of these comforts were built on exploitation and environmental destruction? Or a little of both? I think in response to climate change, pollution, wildlife decline, we in the global north especially are going to have to reduce consumption, which obviously requires vast nuts and bolts structural interventions, but also I think a culture shift, where people begin to stop seeing cheap flights and cheap burgers as conveniences and start seeing them as aberrations. And I think one interesting way to help push such a culture shift is to place a fictional character 50 years in the future and have them look back on the present and see what they say. I'm going to do my best to avoid spoilers and walk you through this in a way that is hopefully illuminating or interesting, even if you don't know anything about Station Eleven. As always, please feel free to rate this podcast, follow it, share an episode on social media, or subscribe on Patreon if you are enjoying the show. And you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter, the link is in the episode description, to get notified about each new episode and get other podcast-related updates. totally satisfied. The novel came out back in 2014, written by Emily St. John Mandel. It begins with a death. A man named Arthur Leander has a heart attack on stage while starring in a production of Shakespeare's King Lear in Toronto, Canada. Onto the stage leaps Jeevan, a paramedic in training, but he is too late. Jeevan is rattled by Arthur's death, but he's also more sure than ever that the life of a paramedic is the life for him. Invigorated, he begins to walk home until a phone call from a doctor friend rattles him even further. A deadly flu has reached Toronto, the doctor tells Jeevan from the emergency room, and Jeevan had better be careful. Obviously, reading this now, it's hard not to think about our current pandemic, but as terrible as COVID is, it really doesn't compare to the novel's flu. This fictional disease is exponentially more rapid and more lethal, with only a few hours between infection and death. It appears to wipe out at least 99% of the global population in a matter of weeks, and we spend the novel jumping around between Jeevan's experience of this initial outbreak, a group of survivors 20 years later, and the pre-pandemic life of Arthur, the actor. So flash forward 20 years, and we are introduced to a young actress from the Toronto King Lear performance who had known Arthur as a child, She's now in her 20s, Kirsten, and part of a traveling performance group delivering Shakespeare and orchestral music to the scattered remains of humankind. I should say that this beginning of Station Eleven is enrapturing, hooking me instantly, 
melding the tragic and the absurd as everyday people attempt to confront what we are probably incapable of truly confronting, the unfathomable collapse of everything we know. And it remains gripping throughout, even where I didn't love all the book's choices, I rarely wanted to put it down. I know many people really love this novel, and it won several awards, including the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. That's the same award won by The Animals in That Country, by Laura Jean McKay, who I spoke with on last week's episode of this podcast. So perhaps all this played a role in setting my expectations too high, but despite a promising start, it left me cold. I felt the independent storylines didn't end up cohering for me in a way I found satisfying that some of the ideas, like the motivating philosophy of the prophet, who's very different in the book from the show, are potentially fascinating but not really developed. Jeevan starts out quite compelling in the book but becomes mostly unimportant. He's a much larger character in the show. But anyway, all that is relatively minor and not what I want to focus on. Whether you love the novel, hated it, or haven't read it, let me try to explain why it specifically didn't provide what I look for in a post-apocalyptic story. Because there's a broader point I want to make here about electricity, wealth, civilization, and the planet of the apes. The survivors in Station Eleven miss the days of electricity. Specifically, they miss the days of light. Many of them have only vague memories of life as it was, if any at all, but this vagueness sometimes lends it almost greater enchantment. Chapter 6, toward the beginning of the book, offers, quote, an incomplete list of the consequences of civilizational collapse. In my reading, at least, it is supposed to be read as tragic. These are things we are supposed to miss, and the writing is no doubt powerful. But I noticed everything on the list was a double-edged sword. Certainly, they were things I would miss, but also each came with a cost that in the book is never addressed. The list begins with light. No more diving into pools of chlorinated water lit green from below, Mandel writes. No more ball games played out under floodlights. No more porch lights with moths fluttering on summer nights. It is worth noting, I think, that the romantic vision of porch lights and fluttering moths is rather less romantic when considered from the moth's point of view. Light pollution is actually quite harmful to insects, and the false moons of our porch lights can disorient them or cause their death by exhaustion as they keep flying. Looking beyond moths, light has long had a cost. In the 1800s, streets, homes, and factories were often lit by burning whale oil, a substance obtained at great risk to human sailors and certainly great harm to the whales. In a February 6 article for the socialist website Jacobin, Chas Walker quotes from Moby Dick. For God's sake, the narrator Ishmael laments, be economical with your lamps and candles. Not a gallon you burn, but at least one drop of man's blood was spilled for it. Again, I would hasten to add that far more than a drop of whale blood was spilled. In today's world, the price of lighting may be even higher than in the 1800s. For the most part, electricity means burning not whale oil, but fossil fuels. Even solar and wind have their costs, although much smaller than the cost of fossil fuels. Damage from mining minerals, displacing wildlife, killing birds. Mandel's incomplete list goes on. No more screen shining in the half-light as people raise their phones above the crowd to take photographs of concert stages. I wonder, are smartphones at concerts really what I would miss most? Up next is no more pharmaceuticals, no more certainty of surviving a scratch or a cut. I don't want to lose modern medicine and... 
Hope we don't need to. I don't think we do. But just today I saw an article about pharmaceutical drugs polluting waterways. And Lord knows the industry is hardly ethical, profiting from people's need, complicit in addictions, experimenting on animals. Even when the product is, for the most part, a genuinely good thing, the process is still in desperate need of reform. No more flight, Mandel continues. No more towns glimpsed from the sky through airplane windows, points of glimmering light. No more looking down from 30,000 feet and imagining the lives lit up by those lights at that moment. No more airplanes, no more requests to put your tray table in its upright and locked position. Here it is worth remembering that being on an airplane is something that less than 20% of humans alive right now have ever experienced. It is, for now, overwhelmingly the privilege of the globally affluent. It pollutes the air and soundscapes of those who live near airports, and it's responsible for maybe 3 or 4% of global warming, depending on how you calculate it. Next on the list, no more countries, all borders unmanned. This seems like not a huge problem. In fact, it's pretty much the lyrics of a John Lennon song that was supposed to be utopian. No more fire departments, no more police, no more road maintenance. I live in Southern California and appreciate fire departments, but police? There are better ways to keep peace in our communities, certainly. Roads disrupt habitat, the cars above them major pollutants. Yes, they should be maintained, but for how long? And the chapter's final paragraph, no more social media, no more reading and commenting on the lives of others, and in so doing, feeling slightly less alone in the room. Social media has its perks, I believe, but this romantic description of bringing people together, making people feel less alone, is very clearly written in a pre-2016 world. People don't write like that about social media anymore. I've skipped words and sentences here and there from this chapter, but you get the point. So much of what Mandel lists here is, at the very least, ambiguous. Even the genuinely beneficial comes with a cost. The show, for which Mandel is a producer, takes a slightly less nostalgic approach. In scenes shortly before or after the flu outbreak, the young actress Kirsten and Arthur's son Tyler are often shown engrossed in their devices, disengaged from the rest of the world. The character of Miranda, Arthur Leander's ex-wife, seems unhappy in her logistics job in the show, whereas in the book she finds it more rewarding. And while I won't go into details for spoiler reasons, the show's version of a plotline involving Arthur's friend Clark, a community in an airport, and the so-called Museum of Civilization certainly invites a more critical eye toward the past in the show than the corresponding plot does in the book. In fairness, even the book can't be called purely nostalgic. After all, Arthur Leander's life as a Hollywood star is shown to be emptier, less artistically fulfilling than the lives of the post-pandemic tra traveling symphony. But most of these critiques of the past in the show and the book tend to be more about how we moved through the world than how that world was made. We liked vacuous, big-budget movies, we had parasitic paparazzi, but the problems run deeper than that. Think back to Moby Dick. Not a gallon you burn, but at least one drop of man's blood was spilled for it. Walker argues in Jacobin that Herman Melville is sensitive throughout Moby Dick to the exploitation undergirding the burgeoning capitalist economy, that Melville understood that for the machines and factories to run, humans must suffer. Maybe I was just missing something, but I never got the sense that Station Eleven was much concerned with this sort of thing. I want to be clear. I would want civilization back, too. 
I'm writing the script for this podcast on a computer powered by electricity under an overhead light. If civilization collapsed, I would be very sad. I like having access to light. I would want electricity back. I'd be devastated. I'm grateful for modern medicine. And while I try to take trains and buses as sure as much as possible, I'm, I've flown a lot in my life, surely more than most. I'm not saying we need to totally get rid of all these things. I'm not saying it's not okay to like them. But I think some of the post-apocalyptic stories I find most interesting introduce an element of ambiguity that is missing here. They allow that there was real light to human civilization, but remember the darkness too. While I was reading Station Eleven, I happened to rewatch the science fiction film Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which came out the same year, also in 2014. The movie, like Station Eleven, follows a ragtag band of human plague survivors who miss lights and electricity. A group of these humans ventures from their settlement in San Francisco to revive an old dam in the woods. But on their way, they encounter the apes, a group of chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas led by the hyper-intelligent Caesar. These apes are the real stars of the movie, but Caesar longs for peace and decides to allow the humans to pursue their work on the dam. His right-hand chimp, however, named Koba, is incensed. Koba grew up a prisoner to science, passed from lab to lab as humans experimented upon him. No more pharmaceuticals, Mandel lamented in Chapter 6 of Station Eleven. Research animals like Koba would breathe a sigh of relief. Koba, bitter from his past, cannot believe Caesar is fine with humans pursuing their work. Koba repeats the phrase, human work, pointing to his many scars from his life as a subject of that work, increasingly furious. It's the most arresting scene in the movie to me. This is human work, Koba is saying, these literal scars across my body. And he's not wrong in his own individual case or in the case of the other animals who suffer for our food, our scientific experiments, our clothing, many of the human workers who help produce these things, but also more abstractly. After all, what is a dam but a scar across a river, flooding habitat and disrupting aquatic ecosystems? Caesar's priority is to avoid war with the humans, however, and despite his many strengths, he is not much interested in democracy. So he lets the humans in, and despite some tensions, even ends up helping them restart the dam. The electricity gets up and running, and it's not a coincidence, I think, that the first building we see lit up is a former 76 gas station. Now, it's possible that 76 simply paid the studio a lot of money for product placement, but I like to think this is a, an intentional reminder of the costs of power in the old human world. Not only dams, but fossil fuels. But it's also not a coincidence that soon after we see the grateful faces of the humans as San Francisco lights up. With electricity, their leader can finally pull up old photos of his long-dead family and breaks down crying, finally looking at them again. It's a genuinely affecting moment, and although the movie is one of the darkest in the series tonally, it is probably less misanthropic than the original 1968 movie, more hopeful about humanity having some potential for good. Even the scenes of cooperation and friendship between human, chimpanzee, and orangutan suggest that humans need not always be at war with the rest of the world, even though that war does eventually come. It's the ambiguity here again that is powerful. Civilization and human work can bring us together, revive memories of our loved ones, 
but it also means destructive dams, gas stations, maiming other species in the name of science, or often for much less. The movie is an uncomfortable mirror that shows us as we must look from the outside. If it is not a flattering reflection, then what can we do about it? Is there a way to get to the former, the bringing us together, without the latter, the destruction? I want to bring one more book into this discussion, which is The Wild Shore, the first novel by the prolific science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson. Some of you may have read his 1990s Mars trilogy, or his more recent climate change-themed fiction, such as New York 2140 or The Ministry for the Future. The Wild Shore, published in 1984, is not as good as the Mars books, which are among my all-time favorites, but it shines in using a post-apocalyptic narrative to confront the ambiguities of civilization head-on. Like many characters in Station Eleven, the protagonists of The Wild Shore don't remember life before the catastrophe, though in this case, there was no pandemic, but instead America was nuked into oblivion and then quarantined by the rest of the world. Only one main character, an old man named Tom, claims to have much memory of the life before. Again, like the characters of Station Eleven, Tom is a big fan of Shakespeare, insisting he represents the pinnacle of the United States as it was. And yes, he tells everyone that Shakespeare was the greatest American. He takes some liberties with the facts in his stories. Eventually, Tom and the main character, a youth named Henry, meet the mayor of San Diego, who wants to break through the quarantine and, I quote, make America great again. Almost 40 years later, the novel is chilling in a way the author could not possibly have intended. Henry, with no memory of the old times, gets excited. An American resistance. You know, we're going to restore the nation as it once was. The mayor wants to restore, quote, another Pax Americana. Cars and airplanes, rockets to the moon, telephones. His own version of the list from Station Eleven's Chapter 6. But Tom, the old man, is wary. America was great in the way that whales are great, he says. America was huge. It was a giant. It swam through the seas, eating up all the littler countries, drinking them up as it went along. We were eating up the world, boy, and that's why the world rose up and put an end to us. America was great like a whale. It was giant and majestic, but it stank and was a killer. Lots of fish died to make it so big. This is perhaps unfair to whales, but again, ambiguity makes this story more interesting. America was wrong in a million ways, Tom says, but we didn't deserve it. Henry is frustrated by Tom's equivocation. Was the old America a glorious country of affluence and convenience, at least nominal political freedoms, unfairly destroyed? Or an evil oppressor, overthrown by a world it had exploited that, understandably, had had enough? The wild shore floats in the ambivalence, answering both questions with a tentative yes. I think perhaps a good post-apocalyptic story, or at least the ones I am personally most drawn to, should leave us confused and unsettled. We don't want apocalypse, to be sure, but apocalypse in narrative creates a critical distance for characters and readers to look back and say, are there any ways this civilization might deserve to be destroyed? If these questions leave us unmoored, Perhaps that sense of disjuncture opens space to more clearly and critically analyze the very real benefits and very real costs of our society as it is, and maybe even think about where we might prefer to go next. For that second question, can this society be fixed, utopias may be a more helpful fictional tool than post-apocalypses, 
sure enough, a few years after The Wild Shore, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a utopian alternate future for California called Pacific Edge. This has some really fun and creative ideas for what a future society might look like, and has some tentative answers as to some, some of the questions of The Wild Shore. How rapacious and oppressive society might, just might, begin to be redeemed. Giving up some luxuries, crafting alternate versions of others, and building some level of solidarity across nations. I wrote about The Wild Shore and Pacific Edge for Boston Review a couple years back, and I'll link that essay in the episode description. But this is not an episode about utopias, it is about civilization being disrupted. And in Station Eleven and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, at least, that disruption is caused by a pandemic. So it's worth thinking about our current pandemic, a mini-apocalypse, and thinking about the chorus of voices that for months if not years has now begged us to go back to normal. But back to normal and endless pandemic are not the only options here. Do you remember those first few weeks of the pandemic and how they felt? We were terrified because we had no idea how bad or how long this could be. But also, we thought things might genuinely never be the same. I'm using we here, but I guess I mean I, but I know I wasn't the only one. I also know not everyone had the the luck or the privilege of being able to stay home, but... For many of us, at least, there was a sort of solidarity built out of shared isolation, a feeling we were all in this together, part of a society-wide project to flatten the curve, and also a realization that maybe the economy could be interrupted to protect lives. Maybe governments could, in fact, take rapid and expansive action to confront a crisis, send us checks, put a moratorium on evictions. Back in May 2020, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote in The New Yorker about how COVID had made everything feel different. There will be enormous pressure to forget this spring and go back to the old ways of experiencing life, he wrote. But we'll remember this even if we pretend not to. History is happening now, he says, and it will have happened. So what will we do with that? That's an important question because I think even when the coronavirus is mostly tamed, it won't be the last major disaster we face in our lifetimes. Warming temperatures are already baked in, wildlife populations are already collapsing, and dangerous right-wing political movements are already stirring. History will continue to happen. We are entering a period of instability, of being unmoored. And of course, many have already been experiencing this by virtue of class and or geography or other causes, but it's becoming more generalized, reaching those who may have thought themselves immune. We don't know exactly what's coming, but if you read science fiction, Robinson wrote, you may be a little less surprised by whatever does happen. It can help you feel more oriented in the history we're making now. Being oriented doesn't mean it's not scary, even terrifying, but Dawn of the Planet of the Apes orients you by giving you the ape's perspective. What cost is borne by our fellow creatures? How will it feel when a planet we thought we tamed seems suddenly like it's trying to shake us off, becoming more dangerous. These are questions and perspectives that I think will be useful to consider in the decades to come. The Wild Shore asks you to look at the United States as if from the future. Was it not just another cruel and insatiable empire? Those of us in the United States were raised in a fairly patriotic and nationalistic culture where we might need some practice to start thinking about the United States 
as it actually is and not as we were told it is. And I think Station Eleven orients us as well with regard to the fragility of the present, to what really matters and what has become spiritually empty, to the value of art and what we do and don't wish to preserve from the past. But I think the image it reflects of the present is just a little less sharp than those other two works. The book's nostalgia for Lights and Flights is just a little too uncritical, and in the show there's less nostalgia, but also, to me, a glaring absence. How can you make a TV show about civilizational collapse and finding meaning amid an apocalypse? And in the show, rather than the book, there's a lot about the resentment of the old by the young. And you're making the show in the 2020s, and there's no engagement with our relationship to the climate and the biosphere. I went back and forth on how much to talk about this. On the one hand, I don't think art needs to have my exact politics to be good. I don't think every novel or show needs to confront every political issue. Just because something doesn't have my favorite issue doesn't mean it should, that it would be better for jamming climate change in there. And yet, when I watch a movie or show set in 2021 and no one is wearing a mask, I think, huh, that's weird, and it briefly takes me out of it. The pandemic has just so thoroughly shaped these past two years. In the same way, climate change has become so pervasive in our lives and will only be more so that when I watch something future-oriented where it's not engaged with climate change, I feel that absence. Much of Station Eleven, as the show is set in 2040, and even if emissions stopped tomorrow, there would still be dangerous climate effects that would certainly affect the task of making their way through a post-apocalyptic world. I don't know how exactly I'd add climate change in, and again, maybe I'm being unfair, um, but to me this was a, a noticeable omission. To sum up, I think it's important to remember and to remind each other when it's hard that the before times were only stable on the surface. There was exploitation and death underneath, driving the machine all along. Behind every light, as Ishmael observed, was blood. This doesn't mean we should never turn on the light, but it means, as Ishmael said, for God's sake, be economical. We can cultivate a new way of looking at our energy and our goods and see their connection to workers and to ecosystems. This cultivation is a task where stories can help us. And I think Station Eleven, for all its strengths, missed a chance to help us do so. And then once we've sort of cultivated this new way of looking at products and materials, um, all we gotta do, no big deal, is use that new way of looking to guide us as we radically transform all our political, economic, and social structures. Well... We must refuse to accept back to normal as a viable suggestion, instead preparing ourselves and each other for something that, yes, will be disorienting. So we stumble towards something different, something new. What does that look like? How do we get there? These are questions for another podcast episode. They're also questions to discuss amongst ourselves at political meetings, at town halls, um, at school. I wish I had better answers, but... For now, I'll just refer to some advice from Caesar the Chimpanzee. Apes alone, weak. Apes together, strong. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, please consider signing up for my newsletter. The link is in the episode description. It'll just be a weekly email 
um, sending the latest episode of Storytelling Animals to your inbox, um, offering any other podcast-related updates. Perhaps, you know, someone I interviewed has a new book or something like that. And uh, also sharing my favorite thing I read that week. Um, So, yeah, you can sign up for that if you like. Um, And if you don't want to, hey, no pressure. Thank you for listening nonetheless. And have a great day. Thank you.